Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Man, it is good to be with you once again and open up God's Word today. So, uh, the last couple weeks, uh, I have had the opportunity to be in some other places preaching. So, two weeks ago, I was in the Dominican Republic with our partners there. That was Pastor Carlos and Pastor Carl that we heard from and what a blessing it was to worship with them. And then last week, I was with one of our partner churches up in the north side of Atlanta, First Baptist of Coming. And let me tell you something. It's always a joy to go and share the ministry of what the Lord is doing at Gospel Hope with other places. And I love to share God's word with God's people. But really, let me say this honestly, there is really no place that I would rather be um, than worshiping with the people that God has called Rod and I to shepherd and to, and to preach to and to share God's word with. So it really is a joy to be back with you once again. And I'm excited for what the Lord has with us. Uh, secondly, you may have noticed um, several people had on these maroon, burgundy, wine, whatever color they are, shirts. We are not starting a cult, um, but we are going to be doing something with them. It was ironic. Where's Tiandra? Tiandra, did you leave? Oh, she hid. She ran away because her shirt says ambition. Um, that's not the Gospel Hope shirt. Ours is serve. Okay, so don't make the mistake and go buy the ambition shirt. The serve shirt is our shirt. Pastor Rod will be sharing more about that at the end of the service, so you're not trying to puzzle that out while I'm talking up here. So we are going to be wrapping up today our series on ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is the doctrine of the what? church. Very good. So Pastor Rod and Travis have been walking you through some of the key ideas, what the Bible says about the church itself. So we talked about what a church is, the nature of the church. We talked about who is called to lead the church, about elders and deacons and what their qualifications are. Uh, we talked about the ordinances or the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's table. And today we are going to talk about church discipline. How many of you have ever heard a message on church discipline before? Okay, a few, a few. So this may be new for some of you. This may be old hat, but I hope the Lord will meet us as we walk through this passage of scripture and explore what this idea of church discipline, it sounds really negative, is really all about. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we open his word today. Lord, we need you and we pause and express our dependence upon you. Would you, by your spirit, draw near? Would you help us? Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law? God, would you change us, shape us, mold us, make us into the image of your son and allow us to see the wonder of the work of Christ on our behalf? Lord, I pray gospel hope would be a church that is characterized by love and correction of one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the title of today's message is My Brother's Keeper. Uh, who knows where that phrase is found in the Bible or that idea is found in the Bible? What chapter? Genesis, that's the book. Four, very good, Genesis chapter four. In Genesis chapter four, we read the very first interaction between siblings. And those siblings' names, what are their names? Cain and Abel. And if you don't know, it doesn't go very well. So in fact, Cain gets so angry with his brother Abel that he kills him. In a fit of jealousy and rage, he murders his brother Abel. And then when the Lord comes and confronts Cain of his wrongdoing, Cain asks the famous question. That question is what? Am I? 
my brother's keeper? What's interesting or maybe even ironic about that story is it seems that Cain is expecting the answer what? To be what? No. No. I'm not responsible for him. I'm not my brother's keeper. But God expects the answer to be what? Yes. You are your brother's keeper, Cain. And in fact, what you did, you failed not only in to control your anger, but you failed to live up to your duty as a brother. In fact, part of what it means to be a sibling, part of what it means to be a brother or a sister is that you are responsible for those other people in your life, right? Or to put it very plainly, it's like this. You are your brother's keeper. You are. That's the Bible's teaching. You are your brother's keeper. Uh, As many of you know, my wife and I have a gaggle of children. Um, Eight to be exact. And because Trisha and I have yet to master the skill of omnipresence, a parenting must in our family, we just are still working on that. So if you have some keys to being everywhere at the same time, all the time, let me know. That would be a blessing to us. We have developed a system or an acronym in the McCammock household, and we call it the OAM. Say it with me, OAM. And OAM stands for the oldest available McCammock. Okay, that, that's, that's what it stands for. So because Trisha and I are not always with all of our children all the time, sometimes we will say, you are the OAM, which means you're responsible. You're in charge. So all of the littler mechanics are now in your care. In fact, I said it this morning to one of my children. I had the baby and the little four. And so I said to Geneva, my nine-year-old, I said, Geneva, Sydney's gone. Calvin's gone. Ian's gone. Daddy's only got two hands. You are OAM. And she said, yes, daddy. The idea is simply this. That's part of the nature of what it means to be a sibling, isn't it? That you're responsible for one another. And it only makes sense. It only makes sense because by by nature, even woven into the fabric of our understanding of what it means to be a brother or sister, we know that we take responsibility. If my kids are playing outside and one of them falls down, I expect the others to comfort their sibling. Why? Because that's your brother or sister. If my kids are in the store and one of them wanders off, I expect the other ones to say, no, no, don't go that way. Come back. Why? Because that is their sibling. If my kids are away from me and one of them is being picked on, I expect the others to stand up for them and come to their aid. Why? Because that is what brothers and sisters do. If my kids are in children's ministry and one of them is misbehaving, I expect the others to confront them. And children, mine that are down there, if you can hear my voice, I see all, I know all, I have eyes. Why? Brothers and sisters do take responsibility for one another. In the previous messages in the series, we've already established that when a person trusts in Christ, they not only gain a spiritual father, as wonderful as that is, it is a glorious thing that if you've trusted in Jesus, you now have a father in heaven. But you also gain brothers and sisters as well. Or as we like to say it here at Gospel Hope, the church is not like a family. What? It is a family. The implication of this is clear. If you are part of the Gospel Hope family, then whether you like it or not, 
you are responsible for these people right here. I know, right? It's a tough pill to swallow for some of us. You are responsible for one another. Again, the Bible is, it's kind of emphatic on this account, actually. Let's just look at a couple passages of scriptures that emphasize the idea that siblings take responsibility for one another. Romans 12, verse number 10. Love one another deeply as, what's it say? Brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Matthew 25, verse 40. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. But the scripture actually makes one point particularly clear. Namely, the responsibility of believers to guard one another spiritually. We're not just to have like kind of warm affection for one another. We are. We're not just to kind of be aware of one another or encourage one another when we're down. The Bible actually over and over again says that we as brothers and sisters in Christ are to guard one another's walk with the Lord. You say, where do you get that? Well, let me read a couple of passages for you. Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 12. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily while it is called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What does that mean? It means that we're to try to prevent sin's deceitfulness from taking root in any of our lives. We're to guard one another in that way. Or Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone among you is is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. In other words, no one is called to go it alone in their walk with God. Brothers and sisters, keep one another, guard one another, even warn one another when it is necessary. We are literally to be our brother's keepers. Or as we like to say it around gospel hope, the Christian life is a team sport. Now let me unpack that analogy. We use it all the time, but for those of you that may be new to our church family, here's what we mean. When you play golf, at the end of the day, who is responsible for the, car, the score on the, on the golf cart? You, just you. you. You drove the ball, you chipped the ball, you putted the ball, and if you stink, it's your fault, right? It's nobody else's fault. But if you play football... And you look at the scoreboard at the end of the game, who is responsible for the score up on the board? Everybody, all of your teammates, everybody who played that game. It's not an individual sport, it's a team sport. In this way, that is what the Christian life is a lot more like football than it is like golf. At the end of the day, we, we are responsible for one another, we are responsible for the score up on the board. What that means is we must take responsibility and guard one another and keep watch on one another so that we, quote unquote, win the game together. Which leads me to my point this morning. Simply this. We must strive to be our brother's keepers. We must strive to be our brother's keeper. If this is what the scripture is calling us to do, then all of us should be striving to be our brother's keeper. So you might hear this and say, I'm with you, Ryan. But what does that look like? I mean, I don't exactly know if, if I know what it means to truly feel responsible for someone else, their spiritual walk with God. 
Fortunately for us, the Lord in his kindness has laid out some clear directives that his children can follow to guard one another well. Historically, theologians and people that that study and write about things of theology in the church have called this process church discipline. And although the idea of discipline may initially sound harsh, at root, this is simply a call to lovingly confront one another to help us grow in our relationship with the Lord and with each other. Church discipline, the place in scripture where it is most clearly spelled out is in the passage that we read already this morning, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following. So what I want to do briefly is just point out three things about keeping through confrontation. How do we guard one another? How do we be our brother's keeper through this idea of biblical confrontation? Okay, so three things that I hope we can take away this morning. Number one, the necessity of confrontation. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, really that if could be when, right? I mean, that's the idea of it. When your brother sins against you, even the most mature Christians in the most healthy churches still sin. No matter how long you've walked with the Lord, no matter how deep your communion with God is, no matter how godly your circle of friends, you still fail in your relationship with God and others. Sin is a reality in this broken world. And the idea is simply this. As long as sin is a reality, discipline will be a necessity. Because none of us are beyond sin We all need people to speak into our lives when your brother sins against you. One of the reasons that every believer should be a part of a church committed to church discipline is because none of us, I mean really, stop and think about this, none of us are beyond walking away from the Lord, are we? I mean, I hope in 10 years I'm still walking with God. But I'm not beyond failing. You're not beyond failing. You're not beyond leaving your spouse. You're not beyond walking away from the faith. You're not beyond falling into a miserable pit of sin. None of us are beyond that. Or as the hymn writer said, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The hymn writer realizes the desperateness of his state, that he needs God's intervention. And one of the ways that the Lord guards us is through the church. It's through being part of a community that will speak into your life when your brother sins against you. Because of this reality, you and I need people in our lives who will lovingly confront us when we have gone off the rails. And this is exactly what the text calls us to do. Look at verse 15. I love the way that NLT puts it. If, you, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Or as we read earlier in Galatians chapter 6, it says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. To put it simply, look, if you see a brother or a sister who is talking or who is struggling, I know this sounds revolutionary. I know this sounds earth-shattering. Go talk to them. If you see someone in our church family who is struggling, go speak to them. Don't be like, well, I'm just going to pray for them. No, go talk to them. Pray for them and talk to them. Do both of those. Because this is the way that God helps us to grow. 
We need to be speaking the truth to one another, not being rude, not being a jerk, but we need to speak in a way that helps guard people's spiritual life. We live in a world that defines love as affirmation. That is, to be a truly loving person means that we simply endorse another person's decisions. But a more biblical definition of love is that we are always trying to seek our brothers and sisters' highest good. Look, if you go out in the parking lot today and you're having a riveting conversation and here you're talking to Rashad and Rashad is backing into the street like this. It's dumb, Rashad, don't do this. And you see traffic pouring down the road. You would not be a good friend if you said, well, I just want to affirm Rashad and his decisions. Just want him to have autonomy in his life and freedom of choice, and I just want to bless him. Rashad, I affirm you, and I think you are making wise choices in your life. You would be a jerk if you did that. What should you do? Rashad, stop! Don't go that way. What if Rashad says, well, I really want to walk this way? Stop! Because if you continue on that path, what's going to happen? You're going to get ran over by a car. And really, in one sense, it's irrelevant if Rashad likes what I have to say or not. Because if I truly love him, I am saying, Rashad, regardless of how you feel about me, I am more interested in your well-being. And so I'm going to speak the truth to you even when it hurts you because I want your long-term benefit. You with me on this? We do this in the world. We should do it in the church too. I mean, if somebody's wandering into traffic, we speak to them. And brothers and sisters, haven't you ever wandered into traffic spiritually? And just honestly, let, let me just show of hands here. You don't have to be specific about this. I'm not asking for a testimony. How many of you have, have ever had a season in your life where a believer spoke to you about an area of sin or struggle in your life and it helped you get back on the right path spiritually? Raise your hand. We don't begrudge people that, do we? We're grateful for that. And though that conversation in the moment may be challenging, we actually appreciate it in the long term. Why? Because this is the means that God has given us to correct and to guard one another. These are my brothers and sisters. I want them to make it. I'm more interested in their walk with God than I am about their feelings towards me. Look, True love is willing to have difficult conversations. This doesn't mean that we should all strive to be judging McJudgersons, but rather that we are willing to lovingly speak to our brothers and sisters when they are out of step with the scripture, and this is actually the most loving thing we can do. I mean, please don't build a culture at Gospel Hope where we're just spiritually nitpicky. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about when you see somebody who is really struggling, who is really not living in obedience to the Lord, please don't start gossiping. Don't make a big deal about it. Just go and talk to them and lovingly point out what you see because your conversation with them may be the means that leads them back to Jesus. The necessity of confront confrontation is here because we live in a world that is broken and all of our hearts are sinful. We need one another, brothers and sisters. We need one another desperately. Number two, the goal of confrontation. 
So clearly, discipline is necessary. But what are we trying to achieve through the confrontation of our brothers and sisters? Look again at the text, verse 15 again. If your brother and sister sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. Now listen to this next phrase here. If he listens to you, you have, what's it say? One. One. You have won your brother. The goal then of confrontation is not to prove a point. Hear me. The goal of confrontation is not to prove a point. It's not to show how right you are. It's not to condemn. It's not to cast judgment. It is to win our brother. Look, winning the person is greater than winning the argument. Look, sometimes we need to just check our pride at the door. Because when somebody sins against you or when somebody is not doing right, what do we get? We get all high and mighty on our self-righteous horses. The purpose is not for you to come riding in on your charger. You are wrong. I condemn you. Repent. No. The purpose is for you to win your brother. Restore the relationship. Restore them to fellowship with God. Which means that we need to be very careful about the way that we confront. Oftentimes, church discipline and confrontation are viewed so negatively because people have seen it done so poorly. That is, those who have done wrong are treated harshly, condemned, and attacked rather than gently corrected and restored. Again, Galatians 6 is helpful. Look again what it says. Verse number one, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Watch out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. Those committed to biblically confronting will do so with gentleness Why? Because they realize the roles could easily be reversed. I could be in Rashad's shoes at any moment. And so that means I need to come along with gentleness, with grace. My goal is not to prove my point. My goal is not for him to see just how wrong he is. My goal is to win the brother, not win the argument. You see, you're tracking with me on that? So say, what? What does that look like? How how do we win our brother? Well, I think when the Bible says win your brother, it's, it's basically a Bible shorthand way of saying restore to fellowship. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, all sin, every sin, think of a sin in your life right now. Think of a sin in your life. Every sin that you commit is relational. That is, sin always hinders our relationship with God And it hinders our relationship with others. When we complain, you ever complain? I do. When we complain, we not only are complaining against the person who we believe wronged us or is not treating us fairly, but we are discontent with the Lord himself and the universe he has called us to live in. When we lie, we're not only trying to avoid the consequences from man, but from the Lord himself. Even sin that that we keep inwards are still an attempt to live outside of God's rule in our life. Therefore, all sin is ultimately harmful to fellowship. Okay, all sin, every sin is harmful to fellowship. Viewed in this way, viewed in this way, confrontation is actually an attempt to get someone back. To draw them back into loving fellowship. Let me give you an analogy that maybe will help. Ed and Glinda, can you guys come up here real quick? Let me use you guys. 
And then Pastor Rod, come up here for a second. And I need somebody from Ed and Glenda's community group. Who's here? Anita, come on, come on. All right, so Pastor Rod, you stand right up here in the high and lofty position. Okay, so Pastor Rod is going to represent the Lord. And Ed... Right, right. It says, <laughs> I know it's a stretch, but use your imagination. Okay, so Ed, if he's a believer, he has a relationship with the Lord, right? Right, okay, so put your hand on him. And if Ed is living in obedience to God, that fellowship is unbroken. It's unhindered. He's enjoying a sweet fellowship with him and the Lord. Ed is also married to his lovely wife, Glenda. So Glenda, come on. And if Ed is living in fellowship with the Lord, he's also living in fellowship with who? With his wife. And there's a sweet relationship going on there because Ed is dealing with sin in his life. He's confessing. He's turning away. So because of Ed's right relationship with God, he also has a right relationship with his wife. Okay? With me so far? Anita is a member. Come on over here. You need to be by Ed. Ed is the circle of all things here. So Anita is a member of Ed's community group. So she has a relationship with Ed as well. And when Ed is living in fellowship with God and in fellowship with his wife and he's confessing sin and turning away from it, he's also living in fellowship with others in the member in other members of the body of Christ, right? Okay, so Ed, put your arm around Anita here. So here's Ed and he's just enjoying sweet fellowship with the Lord, with his wife, with other members of the body of Christ. But then let's say, God forbid, that Ed begins looking at pornography. It's just this hidden sin in his life that he just keeps going, he keeps going, and he's, it's, not, it's not a glance and then turn away from it. It's a habit of sin in his life. What happens? Well, all of a sudden, that relationship with God, that fellowship, that sweet fellowship begins to get hindered, right? That relationship with his wife, what starts to happen? There's distance there. His relationship with other members of the body of Christ, what happens? And all of a sudden, Ed is over here. Now, he's still a believer. He's still trusting in the work of Jesus. But this fellowship aspect, what's happened, it's been hindered. If I, as a brother in Christ, not, not necessarily as a pastor, but if I, as a brother in Christ, come along to my brother Ed and say, Ed, Brother, this is a problem. Let's talk about this. I'm not being mean. I'm not being unkind. I'm actually trying to lead Ed back into sweet fellowship and blessing. Really, confrontation is not rude. It's a rescue mission. It is saying, you are out of the Lord's blessing right now. You are not enjoying fellowship with the body of Christ. I'm coming to get you because I love you, brother. Because I love you, sister. I am coming to rescue you. Not me. I'm not the Messiah. The Lord is the Messiah. But I want you back into fellowship with him. Do you see what I'm saying? That changes the spirit. Well, I don't want to say something. Don't you love your brother? Well, I don't want to be perceived as... Judgy, get your big boy pants on and take it on the chin for the sake of your brother's walk with God and his wife and the other members of the body of Christ. 
Don't be a jerk. Do it with gentleness. Do it with kindness. Do it with grace. But by all means, do it because the goal is restoration. We want people to walk with God. We want people to walk in harmony with one another. And so we need to be a church that's willing to have the hard conversations. You with me? Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. If we view confrontation in this way, it is actually the most loving thing we can do. Again, I'm not saying be nitpicky, but I am saying when you observe people that are really struggling with an area of sin in their life out of love for them, speak to them. Speak to them. Hey, can we talk about this? Number three, the process of confrontation. The Lord not only tells us that we should confront one another, he also outlines a process for us doing so. This is, again, a, a manifestation of the Lord's grace and mercy to us because he doesn't just say, hey, watch out for your brothers. He tells us how to do it right here in this text. Look at this, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in, what's it say? What's it say? What's it say? Step one personal confrontation. If you observe a pattern of sin in a brother's or sister's life, you should lovingly bring this to their attention. Although Matthew 18 specifically mentions a sin against you, other passages of scripture seem to indicate that we should be willing to lovingly confront whenever we see a brother or sister struggling with sin. Again, Galatians chapter 6, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing. So this isn't just when they say something unkind to you. It's just as you observe their life and if you see an area of struggle, you need to be willing to speak into it. In a healthy church, look at this. In a healthy church, this is happening all the time. It's just constantly happening. Spouses are regularly encouraging one another to grow. Parents are gently correcting their children. Community group members are gently challenging one another. It's just all the time. It's just constant where we're having conversations. It doesn't necessarily have to be a big talk. You can just gently, privately speak with your brothers and sisters. Hey, I noticed when you said this. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more, bit more about this, but don't make this as a big deal. This is what Christians do. It's just something that is going on in the life of our church if we're following what the Bible says. Perhaps an analogy will help with this. Listen to this story and see if you can pick up the parallels. As I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man at his adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from their recent shine. Every hair was in place, including the perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone, eating a bagel. And as he prepared for the meeting, as he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up and I watched him as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. Immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese on his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world, dressed in his finest, with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? You see the analogy, right? We all have a little bit of cream cheese on our face. 
We have these blobs of sin and wrong and habits, way we talk and way we carry ourselves, and maybe even hidden things that we think are hidden that aren't so hidden to everybody else. We have blobs of cream cheese on our face. And if we really love our brothers and sisters, what will we do? We say, hey, buddy, got a little cream cheese there. Let me help you with that. Can I just point out that you have a blob of cream cheese on your face? You might hear that and say, I don't know how to do that. I, I don't know how to go up to somebody and, and point out something that I'm concerned about in their life. Can I offer two suggestions here? Just two little suggestions. Make observations, don't draw conclusions. Make observations, don't draw confusion, conclusions. When you see someone who is struggling with a habit of sin, don't come in with guns blazing and serve as judge, jury, and executioner. Simply point out what you see. Don't make, make observations. Don't draw conclusions. Then the second thing is even more simple. Ask, don't tell. Ask, don't tell. You may not have the whole story. When we see something we need to, out of love, ask a question. Not just tell someone what's going on. So instead of saying, stop worrying, say, hey, have you been feeling fearful? Tell me more about that. Or instead of, quit losing your cool. See the irony there? Yeah, okay. We should ask, man, are you upset about something? What's going on? Is there any way I can help? Do you see the difference? You're really having the same conversations, but you're coming at it in a much more gentle, gracious way. Make observations, don't draw conclusions, ask, don't tell. Or to summarize it, accusations harden the will, but questions convict the conscience. Don't come in saying that you know what's going on. You might not know what's going on. Be humble enough to ask them what's going on. If the goal is restoration, which it is, then we should do our best to gain the best possible hearing for the gospel. Here's the wonderful thing. A group of believers that is really committed to this, committed to privately confronting one another, it puts a kibosh on nasty sins like gossip and slander. You want to be a church that doesn't gossip? Be a church that does church discipline. Be a church where this is just happening all the time and gossip will be crushed. So when I come along to James and I'm like, hey man, have you heard about Rashad? James is like, hey bro, have you talked to Rashad? Oh, yeah. Rashad, have you heard about James? No, that's not how you handle it, right? But if we will be serious about this and say, hey, let's get people involved who are part of the problem or part of the solution, rather than like, hey, I have a prayer request. Could you really pray about this brother? He is just a struggle and let me, let me air his dirty laundry. No, that's sinful. We need to be willing to talk to people and help them to be restored. But what if a person, in spite of our observation, continues in their sin? Look at verse 16. But if he won't listen, take one or two others so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Step two is group confrontation. If the matter can't be resolved privately, then others should be involved. Those pulled in have an important function. First, they are there to objectively discern if the matter is simply a misunderstanding and can be cleared up. Sometimes when we go to confront somebody, there's really not an issue. It's just a miscommunication. So bringing others in at that point can help us to clear things up and just move forward. Second, they are there for mediation. 
If there's an actual sin issue, it's possible that another voice can help resolve the problem and restore the relationship. We've all had this before, right? Where you're in a conflict with somebody and somebody else gets involved and you're like, oh yeah, you're right. And then all of a sudden the relationship gets mended up. So they're there for mediation. And third, if it doesn't go well, they're really there to serve as witnesses. They're to call the person to repent and see that the brother, and, and confirm that the brother has been confronted and is unwilling to respond. A word of clarification about these first two steps. No specific timetable is spelled out. What I mean by that is if I have a beef with Rod, it doesn't mean on Tuesday I need to go talk to Rod, and then Wednesday I need to go get Jalen and talk to Rod. Okay, you don't have to be necessarily hasty on this. Rod and I may need to have several conversations to try to work it out. And then if we just get to a point where like, hey man, we need some help, that's where we go get Jalen and bring him in. You see, you see what I'm saying? So you don't have to like, Monday I do this, Tuesday I do this, Wednesday I do this, okay, let's kick him out of the church. That's not how this works, okay? These are steps in the process that should be followed, but there's no specific timetable pulled out. Sadly, there are times, even when these steps that the Bible lays out are followed, that people still refuse to repent. At this point, the Bible lays out another step. Look at verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. Step three is church confrontation. What this means that if a brother continues in an unrepentant pattern of sin, there comes a point when the congregation should be made aware of it. So why would this be the case? Because the Lord actually wants the whole church to take action. What? Verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church. God doesn't simply want the church to hear. He wants them to urge their wayward brother to repentance. You say, well, why would God do that? Well, think about it for a moment. Let's say... Let's say I go to James. James is struggling with sin, so I go to him. And then James doesn't repent, so I bring Zach along. And Zach and I go to James. And he still doesn't respond. Well, there's just a weightiness when the whole church says, Brother, we think you're out of bounds here. It's not just one person. It's not just two people. But it's the whole congregation saying, Bro, Repent. We love you. This is not right. You can't live in this way. Come back to the fold. Be restored. We love you. You are our brother. We want fellowship with you. And the way that you're living actually breaks the fellowship that you have with the Lord and with your brothers and sisters. That's why the Lord spells this out in that way. You say, well, how does that work at Gospel Hope? Well, simply, it's like this. When we get past step two, at that point in Gospel Hope, Rod and I would get involved. The elders would get involved. And we would help guide to the next step if Lord willing. Lord willing, at that point, it would, the brakes would get put on. I mean, that's always the goal. Whoa, let's stop right there. Let's get restoration. Let's get fellowship. But at Gospel Hope, if you go through steps one and two and you can't come to a resolution, that's where you need to come to the elders of the church and say, man, me and my brother are at odds. Me and my sister are at odds and we need some help working through this problem. Would you guys get involved and help us to restore this brother or sister to fellowship? And then if that didn't work, then we would have to go to kind of the final step here. Look at what it says again. In verse number 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Step four is removal from membership. Those who refuse to repent after all the steps 
are then to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. You say, what does that mean? It's simply a biblical idiom that means treat them like they are outside of the community of faith. Treat them as if they are not part of the church anymore. So according to the scripture, in certain cases, it is necessary, even godly, to remove a person from the membership of the church. I mean, we, sh- we should read passages like that with a tear in our eye. Like, this is a sad reality because it means a person has been confronted and confronted and confronted and confronted and they are just saying, no. It's not to the witness of just one person or two people, but the whole church is saying, we don't believe that this brother or sister is walking in fellowship with God and with a heartbreak, we have to say, we need to remove them from membership in the church. Because we're not sure if they really do have a relationship with Jesus because of the way that they're living their life. They may be a Christian. They may be a Christian, but we can't tell because of this area of sin that is present in their life. This is so serious. This is so sobering. So why does the Bible make such a big deal? I mean, why can't you just kind of be a part of a church and come on Sundays and just kind of do whatever you want. Why, why is it necessary to have a process like this laid out in scripture? Two reasons. First is this. God desires to protect his people through the church. As counterintuitive as it may seem, church discipline is evidence of God's care for his people. By calling us to take responsibility for one another and outlining a clear process for doing so, the Lord is protecting us from stumbling off the path. I asked this question earlier, but have there not been times in your life where you were stumbling in your walk with God and the involvement of the body of Christ rescued you? I mean, that's been true of me. Like I was doing wrong, but brothers or sisters came alongside of me and spoke into my life and it restored me to fellowship with God and with others. God outlines church discipline simply this because he wants you to make it. I know Rod and I's desire, and I say this all the time, is that every single one of our members hit the tape. Say, what do you mean by that? I want you to finish want you to go to heaven and just because you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or just because you appear to be a Christian doesn't mean you really are a Christian. I mean, look at Judas for Pete's sakes. I'm sure Judas thought he was in at times and yet the Bible says it was better for him if he was not even born. We need to guard one another and God has given us this process so that we can protect one another. So you said, man, this is scary and serious to me. yes. It is serious. And if you don't want to be serious about your walk with God, then gospel hope is probably not a place that you're going to be super comfortable in. But if you want to honor the Lord with your life, if you want to make it, if you want brothers and sisters who will come alongside you, even when you're really struggling and say hard words to you, then man, link arms with us because we want to help one another make it. None of us are above straying from the Lord. And that's why we need each other in our life speaking the truth. You know, in Proverbs chapter 27, it says this. um, Better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend 
are faithful or trustworthy. What's that saying? When a person who really loves you hurts you, when they hurt you, it's actually for your benefit and you should be grateful for that. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy. Don't go home and punch each other. That's not what the verse means. That's bad exegesis. Okay, second reason why this is such a serious thing. God desires to display his power through the church. Look, God created this process with something beyond us making it in mind, namely the testimony of the gospel. Think about this for a minute. If the church never addressed sin and professing Christians simply lived as they please, what would soon happen? Sadly, we're experiencing some of this in our culture today. The church starts to look exactly like the world, and it appears as if the gospel has no power to transform. Look, the way that people see Christ in the world today is through you. And if you live just like them, they can't see Christ. We have to live lives that are different, that are salty, that are light, so that the world can see that the gospel actually does transform. I mean, Paul took the Corinthians to task on this particular matter. Because in the church in Corinth, they were just doing whatever they want, and they were actually proud of it. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. And, by the way, he's talking about church discipline here. It is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you. And the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Let me pause right there. Paul is not saying that immoral people can't become part of the church. That's not what he's saying. What he's going to go on to say is that immorality can't be tolerated. Or you just can't stay immoral and be part of the church. Keep going there. Um, A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you're arrogant. In other words, the Corinthians were saying, look how accepting we are. This people can do whatever they want. They can be a Christian. That's cool. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? By ignoring the sin, the Corinthians were unintentionally sending the message that the gospel doesn't change people. But the gospel does change people. We don't want to scream to the world, hey, come on in here. Just be the same. That's fine. No, we want to say believe the gospel. And what will happen is as you believe the gospel, it will begin to transform who you are. Look, God does not expect his people to be perfect. Don't hear me saying that. He doesn't. But God does expect his people to be transformed. Come on in. Come on in. Anybody can come to Jesus, but you can't stay the same. The gospel is like a tornado It sucks you in and spins you around and spits you out different. That's the idea. If you have trusted in the work of Jesus, if you've truly trusted in the work of Jesus, there is a new power in you, a new dynamic that wasn't there before. And it begins to change you from the inside out. If you've been around Gospel Hope, you know that we're not like heavy on the rules. But we are heavy on the gospel And what the gospel does is it changes us. It transforms us. And we need one another to say, hey man, the way you're living says something to the people out there and it's not true. We need to say that those who follow Christ are revolutionized by the power of the spirit. Let's not lie about the gospel by the way in which we're living. You with me? 
So we need to be willing to confront one another, not because we're mean, not because we're trying to be controlling, because we actually not only love each other, but we love them too. The greatest hope for those that don't know Jesus is that the church would actually be the church. The way that they see Christ in the world today is by the lives that you live and the words that you speak. And don't, let's not let our lives undermine the gospel that we're trying to proclaim. Say, look, I don't have it all together. I'm a mess, but I am being changed by the power of the Spirit in me. Yeah, I struggle with pornography and lying and worry and hate and arrogance. I struggle with all the same things that you struggle with. But I've been changed by the work of Jesus Christ and he's helping me to take steps forward. So if you're a mess, come on in. Come, come, come. Just know that when you come, the gospel of Christ will start to wreck you. It'll start to change not just what you believe, but how you live. Because Jesus is not only, he not only saves us and does something for us, he does something to us. And brothers and sisters, that's good news. And that's why we need to be willing to speak the truth into one another's lives. So say, where does us all leave us? Well, let me conclude with some very practical application. During his earthly ministry, Jesus made this shocking statement. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister. In other words, Jesus changed through his life and death and burial and resurrection. Jesus changed family primarily from a biological category to a spiritual category. He went to the cross and rose from the grave to make this new family a reality. To put it very plainly, Jesus died to make us family. I mean, let's live in light of that. These people are not like your brothers and sisters. They are your brothers and sisters. Jesus died to purchase that reality. So let's treat one another like siblings. That doesn't mean like ignore one another at Thanksgiving. But let's actually begin to take responsibility for one another. What does that look like? First of all, commit to your family. If you're a follower of Jesus, join a church. Listen, none of us are above wandering from the Lord and we need to commit to be a part of a family who will encourage us to stay on the path. I want everyone in this room to make it. And one of the greatest ways to ensure that that will happen is being a member of a healthy, Bible-teaching, disciple-making local church. The Christian life is a team sport. Get on a team. Some of us are trying to do this churchless Christianity. That is not the vision of the Bible. The vision of the Bible is believers linking arms and doing church with leaders who will shepherd them and guide them. It doesn't have to be gospel hope, by the way. Man, if you think this place is a wreck, well, you're kind of right. But you don't have to join here, but join somewhere. Be under the authority of God's word. Have elders that pray for you on a regular basis. Have members that are saying, we're holding you accountable. Join a church. Commit to a family. In one sense, joining a church, it, it's not just icing on the cake. It's the cake. Link arms with the body of believers. Second, engage with your family. Confrontation, this type of difficult, challenging Biblical conversations occur best in the context of relationship. 
don't just sign on the dotted line to become a member of Gospel Hope or another body. Get plugged in. Get relationships. It is, it is, there are certain people in this room who I can say anything to. You know why? Because I've spent time with them. And they can say anything to me because they've spent time with them. They've invested in the relationship. If we want church discipline to happen, if we want to be confronted and challenged, you need to get involved in other people's lives because if you just see them on an hour on Sunday, it's gonna be really weird if somebody comes up and say, hey man, are you looking at porn? That's gonna be really weird anyway, but we need to engage with our family. Third, care about your family. <laughs> Listen, Love these people enough to say something. Love them enough not to gossip. Love them enough to go to them when you see something in their life. Don't just ignore it. Pretend it's not there. Sweep it under the rug. Love them enough to open your mouth. And then lastly, receive from your family. When they come, listen. They might do it, not do it perfect. Might be clumsy. But listen, because you know that they're coming. They don't, nobody loves to confront unless you're a sicko, all right? Nobody loves to like have hard conversations. So if they're coming, what should that be evidence to you? That what? Okay, that, that, that was not overwhelming enough. Only Pastor Rod said anything, okay? If somebody comes to you with a confrontation, what does that reveal? They love you, they care. So don't be nitpicky about the way they do it. Receive. Say, this is my brother. I can take it from them. Even if they're sloppy, even if they don't have all the facts, receive it from them and be like, man, thank you. I needed to hear that word. Yeah, you maybe got this and that wrong, but I, I want to grow and change. And I appreciate that you love me enough to say hard things to me. Thank you, man. Thank you, sister. Let's be a church that is committed to one another, that is engaged with one another, that cares for one another, and that receives from one another. And Lord willing... When that great day comes, when our Lord returns and we stand before him, every single one of the people in this room will be standing in that great multi-ethnic assembly celebrating the work of Christ. And they can look around the room and look at one another and say, you know what? Part of the reason that I'm here under the grace of God, under the mercy of Jesus for rescuing from my sins, part of the reason that I stand here today is because these people were my brothers and sisters and they love me enough to keep me. Let that be the testimony of Gospel Hope Church. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. We just cry out to you for mercy right now. I pray that we would be a church that practices church discipline, not because we're mean-spirited or judgmental, but because we wanna make it and we actually love one another. We are our brother's keeper. Lord, I pray that that reality would soak in. Just for a moment this morning, I'd ask you to just quietly talk, for the, talk to the Lord for a minute. Maybe there's an area of sin that this has challenged you that you need to turn away from. Maybe there's a difficult conversation that you need to have. Maybe somebody's been speaking into your life and you need to receive. Maybe you need to join the church. I don't know what the Lord's doing in your heart, but would you just take a moment and quietly talk to God about it and just in about 30 seconds, the worship team will lead us once again. Let's pray quietly to yourselves.